The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Our Father, we believe your word, your promise that you are speaking God. You've spoken many times in many ways. Through your prophets, we have that in the Bible. And you've spoken ultimately, perfectly, completely in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. We see him in the New Testament. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would be with us now as we hear you speak again. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help me to teach this passage faithfully and clearly. Uh, It can be complicated or difficult for us. But more than that, Lord, I pray that you would draw each one who is here, who is listening, uh, closer to you, that you would show them who Jesus is, and they would be pressed by your grace um, to decide again, to choose again what he is worthy of. Lord, to the end result that we would see how beautiful and wonderful you are, and that we would want to give you all that we are and worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Gospels record Jesus asking this question. He asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And so we're reminded Often the issue is not, do you believe Jesus existed? Of course, in Jesus' context, they knew he existed. In our context, most people believe Jesus existed. That's not really the question. The, the issue, the question is, who is he? Who is he? And the reason that's an important question and a controversial question is because whenever you ask that question, another question is implied. Whenever you ask the question, who is Jesus, the second question that, it, that is implied is this, what does he deserve from me? Who is he? What does he deserve from me? So because the answer to the question of who he is, it, it, shows, us, it shows us what level he is on, if you will. Who he is shows us what he's worth and what he deserves. So you see why this is... An incredible question. Who is Jesus? And ever since Jesus came into the world, the world has had a bunch of different answers to that question. It's true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day. Many, many perspectives want to say of Jesus, well, he's a great prophet, but he's a prophet only. He's created. So that, that puts Jesus on a fairly high level. So listen to him sometimes, but then they usually say, but really listen to someone else. Another example, uh, there's a version of liberal Christianity that says Jesus is simply a wonderful example of love we can all learn from. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is the ultimate example. But if he's only an example, well, that puts him on a certain level, doesn't it? Modern spiritualists, I don't know if you've encountered this, I have recently, like to talk about the Christ consciousness. Have have any of you heard 
your friends talk about this, the Christ consciousness. And, and people who believe that will, this will sometimes say, I'm a Christian. But you dig deeper and you realize what Christ consciousness means is Jesus, like many other spiritual gurus, I guess, found enlightenment through difficulty to discover what we all can discover, the divinity within ourselves. And so really, you, you unpack this, and this is it's pantheism, which is the, just the word for all is God, God is all. And so when you figure that out, well, you've, you've experienced what Jesus experienced. You found the Christ consciousness. You're God. So for, for many of us, that sounds ridiculous. It's, it's very popular. It's very popular. So, but, but all of these perspectives, and I'm just scratching the surface, they're, they're all asking, who is Jesus? And so if he's, if he's a wonderful example, well, that puts him on one level. If he's a great prophet, that puts him on another level. And if he's just a man with a Christ consciousness, well, that means we're all on his level. But Jesus again asks, and he asks you today, who do you say that I am? So I think, I think we should each be self-aware enough to answer now in our minds and hearts. Ask yourself, who do I say that Jesus is? And what does he deserve from me? And maybe you're, here and you're still working on this. You're still figuring it out. You're not sure yet. I just want you to know we're so glad you're here. We have all the patience in the world. Uh, we would love to help you see what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Just encourage you to, to press in on this. Explore it. We also need to see if, if your view of Jesus somehow gives you a way to keep him at arm's length, keep him over there, then we want to see what this text is doing in us, what Jesus is doing. As he shows you who he is, it's almost as if he's grabbing you by the shoulders and bringing you near to look him in his face and to see who he is and what he deserves from you. So we've just begun working through the book of Hebrews. We started last week, just a little bit of a reminder uh, we remember that Hebrews was written to a marginalized group of Jewish Christians who are tempted both by hard circumstances and bad influences to abandon their faith in Jesus. So many of them have been ostracized for being Christians. They've been persecuted for being Christians. We know from this letter, some of them have even lost their property for claiming Jesus as Lord. And so there's an influence in this group then. Some people are feeling or saying somehow, let's go back to Jewish religion and go back to the Mosaic law without this emphasis on Jesus. We could still worship God. We could still believe the Bible. And we could escape the suffering. We could escape the marginalization. We could escape the difficulty. And so this author is compelled to step into this situation and, he, and first of all, he says, no, 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 no. Don't ever leave Jesus. First, he says, that's just not desirable. It's not desirable. Because throughout the letter, we're going to see Jesus is supreme. He's the best. There's no one better than him in any way, shape, or form. You don't want to leave him. And second, he says, what you're trying to do is not possible. Here's how it's not possible. 
you can't leave Jesus and worship God. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. You leave Jesus, you leave God. And so it's such a powerful call. So as we, as we looked um, at last, last week, we saw this powerful call, eyes on Christ. The way we endure, the way we keep going through difficulty, through marginalization, we feel like everything is awful. The way we endure is eyes on Christ. That's what we saw last week. And, this, and, we, and we saw last week, that section ends like this. Look at Hebrews 1, verses 3 to 4. Hebrews 1, 3 to 4. Our author said, After making purifications for sins, he, that's Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So so what's the author saying right here in verses three to four? Jesus is superior to angels. And so I think here sometimes we, we struggle how many of you, you came to church today and you were wondering, I'm just wondering where Jesus is compared to the angels? You know, Matt, can we get coffee? Is Jesus better than the angels? How does that work? Well, I suspect most of you, you weren't thinking of that as your main struggle this morning. So, so why did the author do this? Why did he bring this up? Well, we just remember, biblically speaking, angels are awesome beings, Right? Our day kind of domesticates them. But in the Bible, they represent God. They speak for God. The Mosaic law was given through them. Angels can bring God's truth, God's judgment, God's salvation. Moreover, some commentators say that around the time this letter was written, there is this emphasis in some strains of Jewish worship to have this high fascination with angels even to the point where they, they want to elevate angels to the level of the Messiah or bring the Messiah down to the level of angels. And so basically what we see here is in Hebrews 1, we see that the recipients of this letter were tempted by that somehow. They were influenced by that somehow. And from their mindset, probably, if you believe uh, the Mosaic law came through angels and you're tempted to go back to Jewish worship and the Mosaic law without Christ. This is just another way to, let's get out of the suffering. Let's get out of the marginalization. We can still worship God. We can still read his word. We'll just leave Jesus. And so you see what the author of this book wants to do. From verses 5 to 14 in chapter 1, he's saying, let's just remember for a moment who Jesus is. Let's remember for a moment who Jesus is. And as you notice, the author does this in an amazing way. He does this in an amazing way. So in context, the recipients of this letter, they would have had a firm belief in the Old Testament as the inspired word of God, right? They would have had that firm belief. We should have that as well. But of course, this letter was written so early This group of Christians, they did not have a full New Testament to read from as we do. So the author says, let me remind you of what God has said about and to Jesus. And it's all from the Old Testament. It's all from the Old 
Testament. You could call this section, verses 5 to 14, what God says about and to Jesus about who Jesus is. What God says about and to Jesus about who Jesus is. So in these nine verses, verses 5 to 14, the author references, by my count, eight Old Testament scriptures to tell us seven things God says about Jesus. And he just drops them. You heard how it was read, right? One after the other, after the other, after the other. And in in each time he's saying, God says this about Jesus. God has said this about Jesus. God has said this about Jesus. So so do you see the, maybe this isn't the, the best word, do you see the trap he's putting his audience in? trap. Um, Do you see where the argument is taking them? Let's leave Jesus for the Old Testament. And then the author says, let's have another look at that Old Testament. And let's see what God, the the God you claim you're going to worship without Jesus, let's see what he says about Jesus. And it all leads you down this road and you, you can't escape it because you finally see I mean, this is the final word. This is what God says about who Jesus is and what he deserves from all of us. And so we're drawn in one piece at a time to face who Jesus is. So this is a, it's a challenge for us to read, I realize. It's, it's a challenge for me to preach. You know, uh, a very wise person in my life said, this is not social media where you scroll through this. This is something where you, you have to think carefully and clearly about each line, and it just kind of adds up. It just kind of adds up. We're at the end. We're at the end. You, you face, you hear the truth on who Jesus is, and then you're called to respond accordingly. So that's what we're going to spend most of our time in this morning. It's kind of an, an, exp, an explanation kind of sermon where we just observe what the author's saying, and we let the argument build up. And in the end, we'll consider what Jesus deserves based on who he is. But uh, if, you're, if you're taking notes, this is the flow. Number one, I do want to talk just a little bit about what we learn about the Bible from this chapter. See a little bit about what we learn about the Bible. Second, we're going to see what we learn about what God says about who Jesus is. And third, we're going to think about what it means to have Jesus on his right level in our minds and in our hearts, considering what he deserves. So let's get going. Here's number one. What do we learn about the Bible? Uh, Isn't it striking how the author of this letter uses the Old Testament? I mean, it's, it's utterly fascinating, actually. And he obviously has this strong conviction that we need very much to understand. So first of all, would it be true to say that the Bible is a collection of books written by a variety of human authors. Obviously. The Bible is more than a collection of books. It's not less. It is truly a collection of books written by a variety of human authors, different contexts, different audiences, different genres, different purposes. And the writer of Hebrews knows this very well. But when he quotes 
from this variety, these variety of passages, right? Maybe eight passages. When he quotes from them, he keeps saying over and over and over again. What does he say? Just two words, whether it's the Psalms, whether it's Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel. What does he say? This is what he says. God says. God says. God says. Even when it's the human author speaking from the author's perspective, God says. So we realize this conviction about the Bible that is at the foundation of Christianity. You don't have Christianity if you don't have this. The Bible, yes, written by human authors, is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit himself to the point where that message was divinely carried out, protected, driven by God himself. And when we read it, rightly interpreted, we hear the words of God. God says, and this is what both terrifies me about my job and makes me love my job so much. If I interpret this correctly and tell you what this word says, today, it doesn't have anything to do with me or how great or terrible I am. It's God's plan. Today, as we hear this, you are hearing God talk to you. This is God's word. That's amazing. God says. So we see then that the Bible is fundamentally one book with one author. Fundamentally one book with one author. The Holy Spirit wrote this about how the Father will save his people for his glory. And the answer to that question, what's the answer to the question? Jesus. 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 Oh, it changed my life to see how the entire Bible is about Jesus, how the whole thing is fulfilled in Jesus. It's amazing. And you know, my friends, Jesus talked about himself in this way. He talked about himself in this way. Look at Luke 24, 25. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He's walking with some of his disciples. He's just, they're talking about, what's this crazy thing that happened in Jerusalem? Jesus listens for a little bit, and then he drops this on them, Luke 24, 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What are the scriptures he's referring to? It's the Old Testament. That's what we would call that today. It's the Old Testament. And what is Jesus saying the Old Testament is about? It's about him. It's about him. You know, I've heard many people say when we, we encounter what Jesus said there in Luke 24, he showed them everything in the scriptures uh, that was about him. And we always say, oh, I wish I could hear that sermon. Has, have any of you thought that before? I would love to hear that sermon. Well, I know where you can hear some of it. right here in the book of Hebrews, right here in Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one is how the Holy Spirit interprets his own book and shows us how it's about Jesus. And it tells us who Jesus is. So we learn something about the Bible here, don't we? Yes, it's written by a variety of authors. Yes, it's a collection of books. Ultimately, it's one book, divinely inspired. It is the word of God for all peoples at all times. 
And it is fundamentally about Jesus. So it teaches us how to read the Bible. As you watch, you're hearing clues, right? Promises about the one who will come. And then as you get to the Gospels, you hear, he's come. And then you read the rest of the letters and you see, this is what it means that he's come and that he will come again. But the storylines about Jesus, or Paul talks about the Bible working like this, it's mystery revealed. That makes a lot of sense out of Hebrews 1. Mystery, you read something, you think, I, I don't know. I see something here, but I don't get how that works. How can this be? And then you see Jesus and you go, oh, oh, it's revealed. And so we read the Bible looking forward to Jesus. And then once we've seen Jesus, we, looking, we look back, understanding things in the light of who he is and what he's done. And the Bible, the entire Bible, comes alive because it is to us about Jesus. And that's what we get to see some of now. We learn about the Bible. It's one story inspired by the Holy Spirit that culminates in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he will do. Now we want to see what God has said about Jesus in the Bible. So are, are you ready? This is like, you know, this is like, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. It's a challenge for us to, to march through here. Uh, this incredible statement text after text after text after text that shows us what God says about Jesus. Let's hear it together. We start in verse four. Uh, the author writes of Jesus, he's, he's become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's think there for a moment. What has Jesus inherited? A name, a name. And what does that name signify? For you and I, our names are just, that's convenient for identification. In the Bible, it's far deeper than that, far richer than that. What does the name signify? What, what does it mean that Jesus has inherited a name? Well, that gets at this question we're asking. Who is Jesus? Who is he? And did you see in verse four, it, the name he has inherited is more excellent he has an excellent name. So that's getting at the idea of what does he deserve? Who is he? What does he deserve? And so then we begin to dive in seven things about Jesus from eight places in Scripture. Six Psalms, Deuteronomy and 2 Samuel. So much diversity, so many different authors, so many different time periods. Ultimately, one voice about one person. This is what God says about Jesus. Verse 5 starts with a reference to Psalm 2. I would encourage you just to keep a finger here in Hebrews 1. Be looking at the, the words on the page in the Bible. Um, follow along there, and then I'll have some, some other texts that help on the, on the screen. <clears throat> so in verse 5, it starts with a reference to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is obviously the second psalm in the Psalter, and it's foundational and preeminent because of that. It's the first royal psalm. And so that whole psalm celebrates the previous promises in the Bible that God will save his people and renew the world through his king. That's what Psalm 2 is about. As you read through Psalm 2, you see that the nations don't like God's authority. Can you find that in yourself? That's a picture of my sin. I don't want you to be king. I want to be king. The nations don't like God's authority. They rage. As you read in Psalm 2, God is not concerned. He laughs at their raging. And he says, look at Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king 
on Zion, my holy hill. You'll see him in Jerusalem. I've set my king. I will tell of the decree, Psalm 2-7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay, who's talking at first? I've set my king. The Lord is talking. This is God's king. And what does God say to the king? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So what does the voice say about the future king? The future king will be the unique, the begotten, the very son of God. The son of God. When do you think that today is? When does Jesus receive that name, the Son of God? When is today? It's an interesting question. Uh, here's a clue for you. Look at Romans 1. 1. This is how Paul starts his letter about the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his, what? His resurrection from the dead. So the author of Hebrews is thinking of Jesus in his humanity. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for sins. He rose from the dead. And as he rose in victory, it was as if that was the moment of his coronation, you have shown yourself to be king and the very son of God. That's who Jesus is. He's the son of God who reigns as king forever. And so the author of Hebrews then asks, uh, who else did God say that to? Anyone? Who else has God said that to? Any angel? Any prophet? Anyone else ever? And the answer is no. This is the one. It continues, Hebrews 1, verse 5. Or again, we get that word a lot, or again. And then in Hebrews 1, 5, he quotes from 2 Samuel 7. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This passage is so important in the storyline of the Bible. You know, in the beginning, we fall into sin, right, in Genesis 3. We're wondering how we're going to get saved, and, and we get this mysterious idea of the seed. The one's going to come. The one is going to come, and then the, the story continues. It's going to come through Abraham. Abraham shows us we're saved by grace through faith, and then it's going to come through Abraham's family, and Abraham's family becomes the nation. And then the nation has the king, and the, and the best king they ever had, the most unique king, uh, was David, God's king. He was unique in that he loved God. And so in 2 Samuel 7, we're watching the story build and we see David wants to build God a house. No context, what do you think that is? What's the house David wants to build for God? He wants to build him a temple, a place for God to dwell so his people can fellowship with him. But God, through the prophet, says, no thanks, not yet. And then God actually says, David, instead of you building me a house, I'll build you a house. And so... So then we think, well, what kind of house is God going to build for David? David wants to build a house, which is a temple. God wants to build a house for David, which is a dynasty, a kingly dynasty. So there's this promise. David, your son will be king. Moreover, these two houses come together. The house of the kingly dynasty, your son, 
David, is going to build the house of my temple. You see how they come together? So how is this fulfilled, this promise? You keep reading in 2 Samuel, you realize the first fulfillment of God's promise to David was David's son, Solomon. Didn't he reign successfully for some time? And didn't he build the temple, and it was lavish, and it was beautiful, and the glory of God fell on it, and you, you couldn't even go in and function. It was powerful. It was amazing. But, but how does the story of Solomon end? It's pathetic. It's awful. It's awful. He breaks every rule. He worships idols. And so we, we wonder, does the promise die? Is God still going to save his people through his king? But there's this, there's this part of the promise in 2 Samuel 7, 16. What does God say to David? 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, how long? Forever before me. Your throne shall be established, again, how long? Forever. And so we think of what is in the writer of, the, of this book's mind. When God said to David of David's son, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, ultimately, he was speaking of Jesus. Look at the gospel of Matthew. What's the first thing Matthew writes in his gospel, Matthew 1.1? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what's the next phrase? The son of David. He's telling you very clearly, this is God's promised king. Moreover, at the story of Jesus' baptism, a voice comes from heaven. And what does the voice say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Who was God speaking of in Psalm 2? Who was God speaking of in 2 Samuel 7? He's speaking of Jesus, and what is he saying of him? This is my beloved son, and this is the king of kings who will reign forever. And you know, I just have to drop this in here. Remember that interplay between the two houses in 2 Samuel? The king wants to build a temple. God says, well, I'm gonna build a dynasty. And we know who the ultimate king is. It's Jesus. Do you know who the ultimate temple is? Jesus goes into the temple in John 2, right? And he does this prophetic move where he stops everything from happening. And they, and, and they say, explain this to us. How can this be? And, and Jesus says, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. And they say, you're ridiculous. It took us 46 years to build this temple. And the disciples, the light pops on later. The temple he was speaking of was the temple of his body. He is the priest who offers the sacrifice of himself. And then he rises in victory as king of kings. He is the house. He's the ultimate. I get ahead of myself. We're on to the third reference now. Now I'm in Hebrews 1.6. Hebrews 1.6. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Let's pause there for a moment. Anyone confused by the phrase or the idea of firstborn for Jesus? You're wondering about that. What does this mean? Well, this is, it's not a direct quote, but it's a reference to Psalm 89. So we have to check that out for a moment. Psalm 89. 
In context, Psalm 89 is a community lament. And they're basically saying in the Psalm, God, when are you going to keep all these promises that the Davidic king is going to come and save us? Our life is difficult. It's a mess. When will you keep your promises? So thankful for laments like that. Do you ever feel that way? When will you do it? Psalm 89. We'll look at what Psalm 89, 3, what the author writes there. You have said, O God, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. See, there it is. I will establish your offspring forever. I will build your throne for all generations. Then as you're tracking with that psalm, down in verse 26, you see what the king will say to God. Psalm 89, 26. Look at this. 89, 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father. What will the king say to God? You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Didn't Jesus pray this way? Oh, father. He cries out to God as his father. And then you see what God will do for him in Psalm 89, 27. I will make him the firstborn. And what does that mean? The next line tells you. The highest of the kings of the earth. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He will inherit everything. So firstborn doesn't mean first baby physically born chronologically. There's a broad meaning in the ancient world. It means king of kings. It means the preeminent one who inherits everything. Look now how Paul applies this theme in Colossians 1, Colossians 1, 15. Look what he says of Jesus. It's the same thing. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Just pause there. Firstborn does not mean Jesus was created. Oh, no. Paul tells you right here, Jesus made all things. He was not created. He's eternal. But he's the firstborn in the sense that all things were created through him and, what are those last two words? For him. Did you know all creation is for the glory of Jesus and he inherits it all? It, will be exp- it, it is his now, and it will be explicitly his when he returns. He's king of kings. And we've learned here, he's God's king. He's God's eternal king. He's the beloved son. So we continue still in Hebrews 6. When he brought the firstborn into the world, he said, let all the angels worship him. Let all God's angels worship worship him. So this reference, this one's difficult. It could be from Psalm 97. It's most likely from Deuteronomy 32. I'll just tell you ahead of time, if you try to go to 32, Deuteronomy 32, and look this up, it will mess you up because you'll say, I don't see the words in Hebrews in Deuteronomy 32. You dig a little deeper and you remember our author is constantly quoting from a translation of the Hebrew text called the Septuagint. Taken together, it's remarkably similar to the English translation of the Old Testament text that you're reading in your Bibles. But in this case, there's a variant in the Old Testament text. The Septuagint has grabbed it. So this Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible used in the ancient world, that's what the author of Hebrews is quoting from. 
And this is what that verse says. All the way back in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, I'll read to you the Septuagint virgin. Rejoice ye heavens along with him and let the sons of God worship him. That's another title often for angels. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people and let all the angels of God ascribe strength to him. The Apostle Paul uses this verse about Jesus, and when it talks about the nations coming, it's the nations coming to faith in Christ. And here the author of Hebrews is using it to show you that God says to angels, worship Jesus. But we come to another difficulty. Let's just be honest. What's the other difficulty? If you're not thinking of it yet, I'll tell you. What right does this author have to take a verse that is plainly about Yahweh, the God of Israel, and just say it's about Jesus? How does he get to do that? Do you ever have that question? Do you wonder? It's a good question. Let's remember what Jesus said about himself. Look at John 5. John 5, 21. Jesus says this, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do you see Jesus' view of himself? He's not just another prophet. He has said, and this, and this is the, the wrench in the machine of many of the cults and many of the other religions who want to say, look, Jesus is just a prophet. Look, is he a prophet? Does he tell the truth? Then this is what the truth he just said about himself is. All will, the, the Father says, according to Jesus, that the Father wants all to honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You read the Bible and you see God's utter hatred of idolatry, right? That's our problem. We think God's not good, his word's not true, so we replace him, we put idols in his place. And that's the core of sin, and it is the great, outrageous rebellion, and God hates it. And he says over and over again, my glory I won't give to another. And so then we're hit with, I mean, this should blow your mind. We are hit with Jesus saying, God actually wants you to worship me as you worship him. You can see why the religious Jews of his day said blasphemy, and they killed him. And we would be suspicious ourselves were it not that he predicted his resurrection and accomplished it. He is the eternal son of God. He's one person with two natures. Yes, he took on flesh to bring us near, to live the perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise from the dead. And in that he is exalted and He has always been the eternal son of God. Equal to the father. Distinct in person. Truly man in his incarnation. Truly God. Worship me as you worship the father, Jesus says. And so the author of Hebrews knows that. And in many texts, as many New Testament authors do, they look to a call to worship God and they say, worship Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God. 
Who is Jesus? What does he deserve? Another thing to mention, did you you see uh, in verse 6 when he says, when he brought him into the world, the firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. You know, another question I have as I'm saying this, when is that? What, What is that? Is that? I don't think it's when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. When is that? There's, there's decent reason to believe. It's okay with me if you're not convinced. There's decent reason to believe that uh, this usage of this specific word is probably talking about when Jesus ascended to the majesty on high. You get that idea of him sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so I, just, I want you to imagine with me the perspective of angels, okay? They're worshiping Jesus from all eternity. And then they're shocked as he humbles himself and sets aside his glory and becomes human. And, and some of them get to come and announce his birth as he's born in Bethlehem. And then they serve, don't they, to strengthen him and encourage him in the midst of his suffering and his humiliation. And then I just imagine they're appalled at the Son of God that they love and worship on a cross. And then they celebrate the resurrection, but it all culminates to this because as Jesus ascends into heaven and returns in glory. And you hear the Father say, let all the angels worship him. What do you think they did? (laughs) They worshiped him. Are you gonna leave Jesus to make your life more comfortable? Are you gonna leave this one? Are you going to turn away from this one? Who is he? What does he deserve? He's inherited the more excellent name. He's the divine son of God. He's the promised king. He's worshiped by angels. Fifth reference, Hebrews 1, verse 7. You get two passages from the Old Testament and this one reference about Jesus. The first reference is from Psalm 104, Hebrews 1, 7, of the angels. He said he, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. That's Psalm 104. You read Psalm 104. It's a celebration of God's greatness as seen in creation. Celebration of God's greatness as seen in creation. You get to verse 4 of Psalm 104, and you wouldn't necessarily think of angels. That's the text this author is using. And so you're thinking, what's going on? But it, it's there in the word play. Anybody remember the Hebrew word ruach? What does that mean? It can mean wind or it can mean spirit. Moreover, uh, seraphim, the word for angel, it means fiery one. So when you read Psalm 104 and you hear of God saying he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire, it can have in there the, the option of angels created by God to do his work as he administers his creation. But I think the big point is this. These people are tempted to bring Jesus down to the level of angels. And what does God say about angels in Psalm 104? What is the author of Hebrews showing you? It's in these two words, he makes. What does that tell you about angels? They're created. You don't worship the creation. As, as amazing as they are, they are created. But do you see the difference of what God, in what God says about his son? Look at Hebrews 1.8. But of the son, he says, this is so amazing. He's talking about Psalm 45, and he's telling you that in Psalm 45, God is talking about Jesus, right? 
You go back and read Psalm 45, and it's a celebration of a royal wedding for a Davidic king. Read that psalm today. And as you read it, you might think, this seems just a little too, little too gooey for a human king. It's like too beautiful. It's too awesome for a human king. That's, that's the sense I get. It invites the bride, but it celebrates the beauty of the groom. And then Psalm 45 has these amazing verses. So this is Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7, or in Hebrews 1, it's verses 8 to 9. It's the same. So look at Hebrews 1, 8 to 9. Who's talking here, according to the author of Hebrews? God is. And who's God talking to in Psalm 45, according to the author of Hebrews? He's talking to Jesus. So this is what God says about Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What did the Father just call Jesus? God. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You're a righteous king. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. Your throne, O God. You're a great king. Therefore, God, your God. God is talking to God about God's king. And he says, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You are more beautiful and more glorious and more happy than anyone or anything else. Just did you know, by the way, that there's no one happier than Jesus? Did you know that? Do you, you know what Jesus says when, when his people are faithful and he rewards them at the end? Enter into the joy of your master. Did, did you get the idea that Jesus was grumpy and he's, he's looking crossly at you? And, you know, you want to go to heaven because it's better than hell, but hmm. do you realize that Jesus is infinitely glad He's beautiful, he's generous, he's glorious. He's more glad than anyone else. And the Trinity is a happy God. And here God is saying in joy of his son, take your throne as the eternal beloved son, God. Can you get to a higher level than Jesus? Because the level we just got to was God. He's the son of God, and he's the eternal king. Well, there's more. We get to the sixth reference. The sixth reference is a reference to Psalm 102, a reference to Psalm 102. So we're in Hebrews 1, verse 10. In Psalm 102, it's another a lament from one afflicted. Look at Psalm 102, verse 3. Psalm 102, verse 3, the author says, My days pass away like smoke, my bones like a furnace, my heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. You ever feel that way? Life is just wreckage for me. Praise God for this prayer God puts in here. Where's, gonna, where's the hope? Look at verse 12. Oh, Lord, you're enthroned forever. Psalm 102, verse 12. You're enthroned forever. Does that, does that give you hope? The one who loves you is on the throne forever. The story's not over. But as we've been going through this passage, you think of a Lord enthroned. Who are you thinking of? It's Jesus. And the psalm continues. You see it in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. 
This is what God says to Jesus. You, Lord. What does God call Jesus? Lord. Moreover, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. You remain. They wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. You are the same. Your years will have no end. God just said of Jesus, you're the eternal co-creator. Created all things with me. And in the end, when you return, did you see, did you see how he's going to renew creation? You and I, our, our clothes get old and threadbare and you, you know, you shake them out. Jesus is going to do that with creation like a garment. He'll roll it up. He'll change it. He'll renew all things, a new heavens and a new earth, and he'll remain as king forever. That's what God says about Jesus. Our last one, verse 13, Hebrews 1, 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Well, Psalm 110 is another royal psalm, and I don't know if you know this, but this is Jesus' favorite verse about himself. You know, in the, in the end of the Gospels, all Jesus' enemies are trying to come and mess with him and deceive him and make him, make him screw up in front of the audience so they'll, so they'll leave him, and of course they can't do it. And then he says, you wanna talk Bible? Let's talk Bible. Let's talk about Psalm 110. And Jesus brings this up. So look, look at Psalm 110, the title that's in there in the text, and verse one. Psalm 110, who wrote it? Psalm of David, Psalm of David. And then what does David write? The Lord says, to who? My Lord. And that's what Jesus wants to talk about. Let's talk about this. So, so who's writing it? David, and who's David? Well, he's the king. So who's Lord over David? Well, I guess God, right? There's no one else. God, the Lord, David is listening in as God says to David's Lord, who's that? Who, who is that in the Old Testament? If, if God is David's Lord talking to my, that David's Lord, how is, who is God talking to? And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the eternal son of God, his promised king. And this is what God says to Jesus. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I don't know what to say there, but that is like Bible trash talk. <laughs> and if you have this idea of you being king and your enemy, I don't know what, is on the ground in front of you and you're just like using him as a footrest while you watch football, You've won. You've officially won. And that image where God says, you inherit everything to the point where those who do not bow their knee to you in a humble faith, I will judge. And those who do, I will include in your kingdom because you are Lord. That's what God says of Jesus. And that's what Paul says. Look at Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 8. Being found in human form. Now, at this point, we should all just be slayed. We've seen the glory of Jesus, and look at what he did. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God 
has highly exalted him. And as we've seen, he cannot be more highly exalted. He has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. See that name he's inherited? It's a more excellent name. He's bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee, should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This will certainly occur. And you can bow your knee in joy because this great King and Lord has given himself for you and given himself to you. Or you can bow your knee under the force of God's holy judgment. But make no mistake, Jesus is the divine forever king. He's king. And so we wrap up Hebrews 1.14. Angels, hey, are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's great, isn't it? <laughs> Angels exist. We believe in them. They're amazing. It's mysterious. But they exist to serve us. We never bow to them. And Jesus, oh, you can't compare Jesus with angels, and you can't compare Jesus with saints, and you can't compare Jesus with other prophets, you can't compare Jesus with his mother Mary, you can't compare Jesus with anyone. Because he's on his own level. He's the eternal son of God. So friends, who is he? Who do you say that he is? And if that's who you say that he is, what does he deserve from you? Because we have something that no angel has. No angel can look at Jesus and say, you died for me. No angel has heard Jesus say, the love my father has for me, he has for you because you're in me. That's what we who trust Christ can say. He's not just the greatest, he's ours. And he deserves everything. Let's pray. Jesus, you are glorious. I just pray, Holy Spirit, you'd help us see that you would speak beyond my futile words, that your word, your word would be impressed on our minds and our hearts. And we would just have to come and answer this question, look you in the eyes, see what God himself has said about Jesus. I, I pray, Lord, for each person here. For anybody who's not yet a Christian, I pray that something would click, that you would show them who Jesus is, and they would say, I want him. And they would look to him in his perfect life, his death on a cross, his resurrection. They would trust him to be forgiven of their sins, made right with you, brought near as children of God. For those of us who are Christians, Lord, just remind us again of the incredible supremacy of Christ and stir our hearts to worship him, to love him, to never leave him, knowing that he's worth it. He is worth it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.